Welcome to Risk Roundup. Identity theft, a deliberate and malicious use of someone else's identity to gain a financial or non-financial advantage is a growing global problem. As the theft in identity goes global and grows rapidly in nature, frequency, and sophistication, it poses a critical security threat to everyone across nations. So if we are to protect our identity in all formats, it is important that we get informed about how identity theft occurs. It is also important that we understand how to quickly and efficiently recognize signs for some of the most common forms of identity theft as getting informed has now become a survival necessity. However, this is by no means going to be easy as the theft of identity continuously transforms to take on new forms and uses ever-changing types, techniques, and tools. So with survival, safety, and security in mind, and to help individuals across nations get informed on this much-needed topic, identity theft, I'm delighted to welcome Brett Johnson to this Roundup. Brett is an identity theft expert at Anglophrase and is based in the United States. Welcome, Brett. We are so very honored to have you on Risk Roundup. I'm, I'm pleased to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Wonderful, Brett. So what is identity theft and what should it mean to individuals and entities across nations, its government industries, organizations and academia when they think about identity theft? So, so what is identity theft? Most of the time, what we're talking about there is stealing someone's personal information and using that personal information to commit some sort of financial crime. Uh, that, that's basically what it is. Now, there, there are certainly other types of identity theft that happens. Uh, someone can steal your identity and, and make a driver's license with it and commit violent crimes or any number of, per, of, of other types of crimes other than financial. But most of the time, it's financial. Uh, what we're looking at is credit card theft. We're looking at... Uh, loans, that type of synthetic fraud, that type of thing. Um, how does how does it happen? It's actually pretty easy. 92% um, of every single breach begins with a phishing attack. 87% uh, of everyone falls for phishing attacks, especially if it's a spear phishing attack. And that's usually how the information is gathered is simply by sending out that, that spoofed email that looks like it's legitimate and it tricks a user into exposing their, or giving up personal information at that point. And then it's sold on the black markets. Thieves use it and commit financial fraud with it. So is it mainly by email that these kind of, you know, phishing attacks happen? Most of the time it is email. So so most of the time you'll receive uh, something that looks like it may be from your bank account. It may look like it's from your Netflix account or your Hulu account or something like that. What we find is we find that most people use the exact same passwords across multiple platforms. They use the same password and login across multiple channels. So you get a lot of credential stuffing that kind of touches upon the topic of identity theft as well. But most of the time it's a phishing email that sits there and says, you know, we need you to update your, your personal information or your, your information on file with this company. People, it looks legitimate. People really don't know any better at that point. And they put their name, they put their social, their date of birth, their mother's maiden, the account numbers, the passwords, everything in there. That's usually what a thief is looking for. And that's what he sells to other thieves. I see. So these thieves, they send out these emails and then, you know, wherever they are able to get whatever uh, data, then they go ahead and, you know, sell that data on the black market. Who buys that? Oh, well, I, I, as we know, I used to buy it. Uh, yeah. I used to sell it as well. But really, so who buys it? So 
let's look back at Alphabay. Alphabay was shut down July 5th of last year. It was the largest criminal network on the planet when it was shut down. Now, when it ended, they had a membership total of 240,000 people for one website. So just that one website had 240,000 criminals on there, all intent on either buying drugs or stealing personal information to commit financial fraud. So there, there's tons upon tons of people, not just in the United States, but across multiple countries that look on how to steal people's information for profit. And it's very easy. For example, um, I can buy in the United States, I can buy someone's social security number and date of birth for $2.90. I can buy a child's social security number for $2.08. If I'm looking for what's called a fool's, that's a complete identity profile. And what that consists of, that consists of the person's name, their social, their date of birth, their driver's license number, their mother's maiden, their credit report, their background check, and any type of social media lookups that need to be done. That entire profile sells for a low dollar amount of $40 up to $130 US, depending on the gender of the person, the location of the person, and the credit score of that person. I mean, it's it's this is a mass type market. So it's, it's its own economy now. So that we see, see this entire economy of this black market identity theft or cybercrime going on, and it's supported by just millions upon millions of players in that. Also, this looks like it's an industry in itself. So why are governments not getting involved and shutting down these kind of websites and, you know, markets and networks? Well, the governments are are involved in shutting it down. As I said last year, we saw that Alphabet was shut down July 5th. But what you have is you have it, it happens online. So you have you have people that are able to hide their identity fairly easily by using the Tor browser, by using Sox proxies, remote desktops or anything like that. So they're very, they're, they're well-schooled on how to hide their identity. Plus there's so many criminal elements out there that it becomes this game of whack-a-mole. So the, the, the government's shut down a website or they arrest a lot of people. Well, the other people that are committing the crime, they're not going to simply stop committing their crimes. They're, they're that's their job. That's their career. This is how they make their living. So they're not going to stop that. They're just sim simply going to find another place to go. So you see one website shut down, two more will pop up in its place. I see. So how are individuals targeted? Is there any strategy behind it or how do they get those email addresses, you know, to send out those kind of phishing emails? So so most of the time, most of the time, it's uh, say, say you're looking at a major breach like Aetna or something like that. So you get all the personal information from people there. So those those are then targets. Now, you may only get partial personal information from them. You may only get like social security numbers and dates of birth. From that point on, it's it's up to the criminal elements that are out there to build that complete profile. Um, let me walk you through one of the ways this happens typically. So say you're, say you're a beginning cyber criminal and you buy credit card information. So I can buy someone's credit card information for anywhere from six to $14 right now. And that comes with the credit card number, the expiration date, the three digit security code on the back, uh, customer's name, billing address, billing phone number. Now that's going to run six to $14. Now I can use that as a criminal. I can use that immediately and profit 500 to $1,000. But if, I, if it's a good card, if it's something like a Chase Rewards card or something like that, what I need to do is I need to do an account takeover. I need to ATO the account. To do that, I need, a, I need the complete profile, the complete identity profile of that person. So what I would do as a criminal is I would buy the credit card information for six to $14. And I would go, if it didn't have the social security and number and date of birth, I would go to a website like robocheck.cm. I could buy the social date of birth there for $2.90. From there, I go over to legal websites and start pulling background checks, something like Ben Verified or Spokio or something like that, and pull the background check on that victim and every single associate of that victim in the hopes of getting the mother's maiden name. 
Once you have that, then you head over to annual credit report or someplace like that to pull the credit report. Now, in the United States, what we have is we have knowledge-based authentication questions. Everything is based on security questions. If I have the answers to the questions, I can take over any account that I want to. So especially with a website like annual credit report, you can go over there and it doesn't have a time limit. It has the KBA questions, but there's no time limit. So a criminal can literally sit there all day long with the background checks, with Google, social media lookups, everything else, and find every piece of information he needs to answer the KBA questions, get that correct. He then has the credit report. Once you have that, you can pretty much do whatever you want to with someone's personal information. You can ATO that specific credit card account that I bought. You can uh, set up for student loan fraud, social security account takeover, HELOC loans, anything you want to do. No, oh, I see. No, that sounds really scary for a lot of people. So uh, uh, from what you are telling me, it looks like there is a link between data breaches and identity theft. Absolutely. So so what happens is with a, with a data breach, you, you're having a small group of criminals that's that is potentially getting millions of records. All right. Now, that small group, there's no there's no real way that that small group can use every single one of those records. So what we see now is we see that that the that the dark web, that those black market places on the dark Internet, we see that they're they're kind of like it's it's almost a comparison to this gold rush that happened in the 1890s in the United States. It wasn't the it wasn't the people out there mining for gold that made all the money. It was the people supplying the products to the miners. So what we see in the on the dark web now is you see that there are many many criminals out there committing all types of identity type fraud. But the people who are making the most money are the people who are selling those products for the criminals to use, whether it be social security numbers, credit cards, anything like that. It's, it's as I said, it's not really a business anymore. It's an economy now. Yes. Yes. So it seems so when you say the data breaches, you know, are one of the reasons, the major reasons, probably how, you know, this kind of uh, data is accessed by all the thieves, then, you know, they send out more uh, you know, phishing emails and get, gather further data. But when we talk about the corporations or organizations where the data breaches happen, it could be governments, it could be, you know, industries, it could be academia, anywhere, you know, any kind of uh, entity. Absolutely. And that, that's that's the thing is what a criminal does is, so, so if you're looking to commit identity fraud or some sort of, if you need information, what a criminal is going to do is he's going to take the, the path of least resistance. That could be medical uh, information. It could be from government. Uh, so we saw the OPM breach. That breach was actually fairly easy. We saw the Equifax breach that happened with the credit bureau. That was uh, that was a failure of simply applying an, an update to an Apache exploit. Um, you see all kinds of things like that. So typically it's it's not, I like to say it's not hacking a system. It's hacking the human behind the system. Uh, one of the examples I give is, so, so a, a criminal has a, a cyber criminal has a toolbox of things that he can use to steal information or money. And in that toolbox, you may have these high level exploits and, and hacking tools. But a lot of the times, also in the toolbox, you have these social engineering techniques like phishing or, or spoofing a phone call or anything like that. And most of the time we see that that's all that's needed are those easy tools. You know, you, the, the DNC breach, for example, that started with a phishing email. I mean, we see time and time again that these major breaches happen because of very easy things. It's it's all about manipulating a human and giving information or or access up that they know they shouldn't. Yes, no, that that uh, seems like the case, you know, in uh, all the uh, cases that, you know, we are hearing about, you know, that are at least publicly known. There is a lot that is not publicly known, but from what is publicly known, it looks like uh, there is a human element, you know, that is... Uh, 
perhaps you know the most important so when we talk about what steps corporation should take or not take what are the different variables that are very important for the corporations to ensure that you know they are not having data breaches in the at the back level where you know so many of their employees or so many of their members you know any kind of organizations that they their security their privacy is at risk so what should corporations be doing what should organizations be doing especially for uh, if they to first is to prevent the data breaches and if not if they cannot prevent it then once it happens what steps they should be taking sure so so what i i've got a pre- in my presentations I, I talk a lot about how the commission of cybercrime is not rocket science it's not a really complicated thing to commit these crimes it's also not really complicated to protect yourself or your organization against these crimes either one of the top things actually what i say is the top thing to do is training every single person in that company about security awareness the thing is is that as a criminal what i could do is i could pick up the phone simply spoof a phone number and bypass every single bit of internet security that that company has. And I call in, I speak to the lowest paid, least educated member of that company, usually customer service, and they're, they're trained to help me. They want to make me happy. Um, and those people aren't trained on cybersecurity, yet they, they're, the, they're on the forefront of it. That they are on the front line of, of that attack method. So what I say is, is that every single person in a company needs to be trained on every single ex- exploit that's out there on phishing training, every, everything else from the top, the guy that's signing the checks to the guy that's sweeping the floor. Every single person in that business needs to have training. Um, also, you need to, of course, we know about firewall awareness. We know about uh, phishing simulation training that needs to be done as well. Uh, BYOD, bring your own device. Many, many times in a, uh, when I'm talking to a group of people, whether it be financial or security or Fortune 500 or whatever, many times I'll ask, how many people surf Facebook from work? And of course, there, there's lots of chuckles in the audience. And maybe out of an audience of 200 people, you'll have two or three people that will raise their hand. Most people get so bored at work that they access the internet and use the internet for things that are not work related. Now you're not going to stop that. That's, that's simply human nature. But what I advise companies to do is use an outside line. Since you're not going to stop that type of behavior, make sure that they're, that when they're surfing these sites that are not part of the company, that it's on a line that's not connected to data that's important to your company. Um, I think that's one of the most important things because what I like to say is I like to say, Hey, the weakest device that accesses your network is exactly how strong your network is. So that's, that's one of the things I talk about. I like to use, I like to recommend password managers because we, as people, we don't know how to, how to accurately pick up a, a secure password. We're not trained on what a secure password is. We go to a website, we see that it says, use this many characters, use uppercase, lowercase, throw in a few, a few symbols. And then there's a graph there that says weak, 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 strong. And we say, Oh, it's strong. I don't know how it got there, but it's strong. That's a good password. And we tend to use the same password across multiple sites at that point. Uh, a password manager, and I don't care which one you use, I use LastPass, but uh, some sort of password manager, I think, takes all of that out of your hands. It's every, everything's encrypted, and it's it's a wonderful tool to use. Uh, so I, I like to recommend that. Um, other than that, I, th- I think that's the three big things for companies to do. I also, I, I really want individuals to to freeze their credit and to monitor all accounts. I think that's extremely important as well. 
No, I think you gave some very important tips there. I mean, for organizations to have two separate networks, uh, one for, you know, the company-related work and one for if employees want to go on and have, uh, you know, explore social media while they are at work. That's I think that's an excellent suggestion. And uh, uh, yes, the, the you know, what, anti, what individuals should be doing, you know, that is also very important, password manager and uh, uh, all the, you know, rest of the education and information right. that right. Uh, you know is very very relevant so uh, we you talked about phishing but are there any other ways that you know identity theft or fraud can happen to individuals all right there's there's countless ways um we still have people that are doing dumpster diving today so we we have people who are who are inside employees uh, that's one of the typical ways that you see children's information being released on the dark net as you, you have someone that's working at a medical office, a pediatrician's office, they have access to children's records and they sell that access. So it's, it's, there are many, many countless ways. Most of the time, those breaches happen because of a phishing email most of the time. But the thing is, is that we as a people, it's, it's important that we, that we start to understand that our information is already out there. There's no such thing as making sure our information is no longer compromised. It's already been compromised. So now we have to get to the point where we accept that and we get and we start working on a way that even if a criminal has access to our information, that he or she can't use that information for profit. And that, you know, we're looking at things like blockchain, we're looking at things like uh, digital biometrics, things like that, things that, that make sure that even if a, if, if a crook has your information, if the biometrics don't match, he can't use that information. But are we, are, I mean, for us, for any nation to be able to use biometric data, wouldn't we need to have some, uh, you know, common standards like, you know, what biometric data we are going to use? And uh, I mean, facial recognition technology is getting, you know, very uh, mainstream now. And then there are also retina scanning and many others, you know, uh, fingerprinting and all those can be done. But at the same time, it also increases the vulnerability, right? I mean, when you are Absolutely. talking about security. So uh, yes, blockchain would be a great tool to use it. If everything gets on blockchain, then, you know, to assign a digital identity to any individual uh, would make things so much easier. But we, how, I mean, I don't see that we are any closer to having those kind of systems. <laughs> you, you are absolutely right. We are no closer at all with having those types of systems. So, you know, looking at, uh, first of all, you, you've got exactly what you said. You've got the problems of standards looking at biometrics. All right. That's, that's a huge, huge issue because we, we've not even began to approach that yet. Um, not only that, that type of retina scan biometric or fingerprint, but also looking at just the angle of someone holds their phone, the way they type, the speed they type at, anything else like that. Those are unique to each user. But again, you have to have enough, you have to have the standards established. You have to be able to collect enough data, especially if you're doing that, that type of uh, a digital biometric where you're looking at angle of phone or something like that. You have to be able to catch enough data so that the margin of error isn't large enough for a criminal to walk into. That's stuff that, that they are really nowhere near solving that problem yet. We're looking at maybe five years in the future for that. As far as blockchain, Honestly, blockchain is a great idea and a lot of security companies are looking at it, but I am not convinced yet that anyone really knows how to use it except for making cryptocurrency. All right. Um, I think it's coming. I really do believe that it's coming. But until we until we figure out a way to use blockchain that isn't just another token based system, I think that becomes, a, you know, that's a huge issue at that point uh, in the. I hear you on that because, I mean, there are a lot of uh, initiatives going on, but uh, most of them are, you know, focused on the tokens. But right. pretty much, you know, blockchain is 
can could become the digital you know infrastructure for everything and if we are able to achieve that and when we are able to achieve that that you know a lot of uh, privacy issues security issues will be able to manage it very easily but uh, until we reach there i mean i think every country every nation is looking at blockchain very very seriously a cryptocurrency is another uh, variable but blockchain i think everybody is very serious about it so hopefully there is a hope that you know there is a lot of potential in uh, blockchain and that we will be able to use it you know very uh, for the ben- benefits of the you know all the industries and all the components of a nation and that it could become the digital infrastructure and uh, will be able to rebuild all uh, you know and redefine redesign and rebuild all the systems on that but we still it will take some time you know probably you know many years before we are able to reach that but g- going back to the topic of you know individuals when they uh, like you said that you know probably most of our you know identity data in some form is probably already stolen and it's out there but what are the warning signs of identity theft i mean if you are an individual what are the some of the indicators that would tell you that you may be a victim of identity theft sure so some of the indicators uh, first and foremost if you if you start receiving mail that is unsolicited credit advertising something like that uh, you get you get a bill that you've applied for credit that's one of the telltale signs at that point especially for uh, something like synthetic fraud uh, so you have to look at stuff like that you have to pay attention to your credit reports uh, so so a lot of the times people don't know they've been a victim until they go to apply for an automobile loan or something like that and they're denied and they're denied because they've got really bad credit when they thought they had a 780 credit score they've got a 530 all of a sudden because someone's been been robbing them. Um, it, it's it's really all about awareness at that point. How aware are you of, as a person of what's going on within your environment? Um, so so are are you receiving mail? Has your mail went missing all of a sudden? That that becomes one of these issues too because someone may have redirected your mail to another address. Um, have you received uh, uh, offers for credit cards or, or a statement saying you've been denied for credit? Are you checking your credit report? Most people don't even check their credit report. So so you need to check your credit report. Do you see a new address on there that's been added or an inquiry where you did not apply for credit but yet some company pulled your credit report? These are things that you need to be aware of and be looking at. Um, uh, there, unsolicited calls for for personal information is, is has someone called you and and said you know we need to update your account file or something like that and and they're looking for your social security number your account login or something like that it's it's always something to be aware of uh, what's going on now now there are many many tales on that but the thing is that what what I advise people to do is when you receive either physical mail email a phone call and it's looking for unsolicited personal information. At that point, you need to sit, step back and say, okay, this could be fraud. So what do I need to do? Let me hang up and I'll look the number up myself and call the people directly at that point. Uh, because what can happen is, is, and I used to do this as a criminal, I could spoof the phone number, call into you, and on your caller ID, it would say Social Security Administration, or it would say the name of, name of your bank or anything else like that. And I'll, the only thing I would need to do is say, you know, hi, this, this is Jim from Social Security Office. It looks like we've got a, a problem with your Social Security number. We need you to verify that for us. And more than likely, you would tell me your Social Security number at that point. Um, that that's that becomes a huge problem and a huge issue at that point. So it's really about people having enough awareness to understand that that things are going on, which could always be used to steal money or information from them. So it's it's about raising that person's awareness more than anything. 
Yes, absolutely. But there's also another point I have been thinking that uh, as as we discussed, you know, in the beginning that this has become almost an industry now. It's an economy of its own. It's no longer a small scale effort. So why are, I mean, it's not like, you know, you see that some, you know, weird kind of people are getting into to becoming hackers or criminals, you know, or, you know, thieves who are stealing data. Brilliant people are also getting are also drawn towards you know uh, this industry because it's probably you know one of the reasons it's easy money you know and uh, probably it's a thrill that you know they are able to hack into systems and they're able to get all that data but things have has it become so easy for hackers or you know I mean brilliant people are out there but I'm also hearing that there are also very large scale efforts that there are applications available for everything if you want to steal credit cards there is an application for that if you want to do any kind of you know uh, crime digital crime then there are you know tools and techniques available so easily so has it become that easy for hackers or want to be hackers to get into this industry that easily and how can we change that how can we reverse that trend that people especially the brilliant minds that are out there that we can use their you know intelligence and brain power and talent for the benefit of the global community for solving bigger problems rather than you know creating this petty uh, you know crimes Sure. So, so talking about the ease of which the crimes are committed, and, and I hesitate to say the word hackers because that that would denote a, a degree of skill that most of these people simply don't have. All right. So, so let's just say cyber criminals. So, so a new person that wants to become a cyber criminal, he reads some news report and he, he reads all the money, all the all the news about all the money that this person stole, and he wants to do the same thing. So he can go to one of these darknet forums. He can he can start immediately. Uh, so he can buy a tutorial for as low as $50, which will walk him through step by step how to commit any specific type of crime he wants to. If he's not comfortable enough with that, he can he can actually pay for live instruction. There, there are live fraud teachers that will walk him through a six week class through Skype or Jabber that. They hold his hand, walk him through every step on, on how to commit payment processing fraud or friendly fraud or anything else. At the end of the six weeks, if he's not making money, they even refund his tuition at that point. Um, credit cards are sold for 6 to $14. People's social security numbers are $3. Uh, complete profiles as high as $130. So every single product is there. You're talking about applications. There are applications out there that spoof browser fingerprints. There are applications out there that spoof geolocation. Any, any single thing that a criminal needs to commit a crime is out there and already automated or is a product on a shelf that just he can purchase for anywhere from $7. And I've seen some of these products up to $2,500 before. So it just depends on the, the, on the type of crime that the guy wants to commit. Now, how do you stop that? And you're right. I mean, there are some absolutely brilliant minds out there that are committing these types of crimes. They commit it because mostly because of cash but also because there's a degree of thrill there. There's this, they, 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 it's this highly euphoric thing. It's this idea of one person taking on a multi-million dollar corporation and stealing money from that multi-million dollar corporation, this David and Goliath type principle. So how do you stop that? I think that you have to start when the kids are young. We see over and over again, we see that younger and younger people are, be, are becoming involved in cybercrime. So I think that at that point you need to make sure that you're, that you're, if you're, 
if you're a parent, you're talking to your kids, you're understanding what they're interested in, what they're doing. Too many times, especially in the United States, we see that that parenting takes place by giving the kid a mobile device and go off on your own and just do something, leave the parents alone. Uh, I think that people need to be more involved in what the youth of our, our nation are, is doing today. And we're just not. And because we're not, we, we leave the children with the computers, with the with the smartphones, everything else. And they they sooner or later they find these illicit type of activities and they're drawn to them. And and there is that there is that that draw. There is that, you know, when you see that and you see all these people that are talking about doing all this stuff illegally, there is that draw for a lot of people. There's that uh, that temptation that comes along. And if you're the younger you are, you you're not really able to handle that temptation very well. And you succumb to it. So I think that uh, you know as we as we find people that um that are committing these crimes. I think we need to work on mentoring them, on taking them under our wings and, and giving them a chance to do the right thing, especially children. Now, if you're an adult breaking the law, I think you need to go to prison for a while. But a child, I don't think a child needs to go to jail whatsoever. He needs just, he just needs some mentorship and some guidance. Um, companies, what we see time and time again when a company is breached, we see that the company first denies the breach. Then the company admits the breach and minimizes it. <laughs> and then over the next year, it comes out that whatever the company initially said, it's probably 10 times worse than that. We we have to get to the point that when a company is breached, that they share the information with other companies, either in their vertical or some way to share information so that other companies don't become targets of the exact same type of crime. Because as a criminal, what you see is that if, if one type of crime works with one organization, you know as a crook that it's going to work with other types of organizations as well. And if, if that organization doesn't know about it, they're wide open for it. We have to get to the point where we're applying updates as soon as they're released, especially security updates. I mean, that's the Apache exploit that Equifax was hit with. That was uncalled for. That should have been an automatic update. It should have been applied immediately. Instead, they waited two months. Meanwhile, the attackers went in not once, but hundreds of times. And, and it wasn't just that. They went in and the information they got, it wasn't encrypted. It was, it was just wide open right there. So we have to get to the point where we understand encryption and we use it widely and everything. It's, 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 it's a huge problem, but it's not a problem that we can't overcome. It just takes some work, some understanding and, and the, the willingness to do it. Yes, very true. That is the key. There needs to be willingness and there needs to be a desire to develop a system where we can bring the accountability to each and every individual's action, you know, irrespective of whether they are, you know, corporate uh, entities or whether they are kids or whether they are, you know, parents, everyone involved Absolutely. to bring that accountability. But we just don't have that, you know, and that's where, you know, there are a lot of gaps and vulnerabilities. So we talked briefly about, you know, criminal identity, about uh, uh, financial identity, about medical identity theft, you know, that happens. But I also heard that there is a child identity theft also going on. Uh, can you share some light on why that child identity theft happens? What type of identity theft? Child identity theft? So, so children are the number one victims of identity theft, uh, either through tax fraud, medical fraud, or synthetic fraud. And the reason that happens is that a, a child's information has never been seen in some sort of financial environment before. So let me use the example of synthetic fraud in the United States, all right? So synthetic fraud, it really, it really started gaining a lot of traction in 2011 because the Social Security Administration, they randomized Social Security numbers, meaning that you could no longer tell the year the Social was issued or the state it was issued from. 
Now, when that happened, they did it to combat identity theft. But when, when it happened, it allowed a criminal at that point to either make up a social security number or use a child's social security number born after 2011. He can use that social security number, just the number, put an adult name to it, an adult date of birth, an address, and a phone number, and he can build up a credit profile pretty easily. He can actually go from a zero credit score to a high 700 credit score in under 30 days with a child's social security number. It looks like an adult. The credit bureaus don't know any different at that point, And he uses it to uh, to apply for loans, to get cars, any number of things. So a criminal using child social security number for synthetic fraud can profit $30,000 within 40 days. So that's one of the reasons that children's ID is used. Uh, tax fraud is another one of these ideas. So in the United States, filling out tax returns for, for refunds, we have this thing called the earned income credit. So if a person has enough children and they make a low enough wage, the government actually subsidizes their income by giving them a tax credit in, in the form of cash. So if, if that child's social has never been seen on a tax profile before, a crook can use that, apply for taxes or that tax credit under that child's social security number and get pocket probably $2,000 for each social security number he uses for that child. All right. Uh, medical fraud is most the same thing that that social security number has not been seen in that type of environment before. And because of that, he can use that to set up a new medical profile, get services for free, sell those services to other crooks, sell the services to people who need services, anything like that. That's uh, so 25%, 25% of all children will be a victim of identity theft. Uh, one of the big things about that is, is that the child never knows about it. So, so most of the time, the child, when you're stealing these kids' identities, they're under five years old. So that gives the crook a 12 to 13 year head start before the child even knows that he or she was a victim of identity theft. By that point in time, the trail has grown cold. Law enforcement probably is not going to do anything at all about that because they've got other things that are pertinent, timely right now to worry about. So it's left with the child now becoming an adult, trying to either go to school, get credit, anything else. And he or she cannot because they're already a victim of identity theft. Everything's already been destroyed for them at that point. So what, I mean, obviously, they're not all families, you know, check, monitor their kids' identity, right? I mean, that it's just an expensive process. I mean, not all adults also are, you know, monitoring their uh, identity or uh, signing into organizations like Complete ID and uh, there are, you know, many others. I don't right. know. Yes. So what, what I advise, what I advise people to do, especially for children, and it works extremely well for children, is to freeze the child's credit. So you have to contact all three credit bureaus and you tell them you want to freeze your child's credit. And at that point, they, they open up a credit profile with that child's information and they put a freeze on it. And you don't need to unlock that freeze until the child goes into being an adult at that point. And that stops what a credit freeze does is it stops all new account fraud. And that is exactly what a child will be hit with is new account fraud. So it's extremely effective for children, not as an effective, not as effective for adults, but for children, it's extremely effective to just freeze the credit on them. That's an excellent point, but that makes me think that why are governments not automatically freezing all kids' identity until they become adults? Why that is a question that, that I can't answer for you. <laughs> That's an extremely good question. Sense that you know all the government should be doing this. That absolutely. The kids are not going to buy any property. They're not going to open any account. So until they reach the adulthood, why to, you know, keep their uh, 
credit you know open we should like you said you know let's just freeze that that makes it very easy so at least you know they we don't have to worry about kids identities getting stolen then we can focus on the elders so that is something for you know i'm not sure why governments are not taking quick action on that if it's as simple as freezing credit you know that should be pretty easy for any government you know to be able to do that that, I agree. That, I agree. I mean, for, for children, it's extremely effective that, and it is that easy. Yeah, because educating all the parents, I mean, it's a good, uh, there are many initiatives going on. People are, you know, making effort to educate everyone, but reaching each and every, you know, family or, it, you know, parents to tell them to freeze their uh, kids' identity or, I mean, uh, the credit, it, it takes a lot of effort. If governments can do it, you know, just uh, by passing the legislation, and it would be, you know, very simple uh, process that would need to be followed by each and every credit bureau. So uh, I hope that, you know, governments uh, can think of this and, you know, go in that direction to make uh, security and privacy of uh, children, you know, much easier and, you know, much more protected. Uh, so that they don't have to go through this kind of, they don't have to become victims. But uh, when you look at it, I mean, you are traveling a lot, you are speaking uh, at many places and you are evaluating the impact of identity. I mean, you are, uh, you know so much about this identity theft that is happening, the economy that is built on it. What impact do you see not only today, but in the coming years because of this identity theft that is uh, blooming? We're going to get to the point because, because especially in the United States, uh, everything's based on knowledge-based authentication. We're going to get to the point that everyone's information is is so available, so readily available to criminals that they can answer any KBA questions out there. So we have to we have to establish a way to verify and authenticate identity that is more than just security question based. Um, that that becomes the huge problem. You see, you see now that uh, it used to be that identity verification was a binary thing. You would go to a website and either you were that person or you were not that person. Once you had that that one answer uh, given, you were in the site and the site authenticated you throughout at that point. Authentication now is, is becoming to the point where we have to get to continuous authentication. So it's not just the one web, the one login to the website, but it's every single step that customer makes throughout that, that experience on the website. So authentication has to be continuous now. Um, that, that helps to a degree. But again, we have to get to the point where we get rid of things that could be fished, that information that could be fished, those KBA questions. We have to get past that to another way to authenticate a person other than asking them some question like mother's maiden name or last four social security number or what your previous address was or something like that. We have to get there. What that answer is yet, I don't know. I like in the future, I think that answer comes in with, with biometrics. I think it comes in with blockchain. Up until that point, I don't know what that answer is right now. See, the point that you made on the authentication should be at all stages. On that, uh, you 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 zoned out on me there for a second. Sorry about that. Sorry, uh, you cut out on me for a second. Can you repeat the question? Uh, the the point that you made that the authentication has to be continuous. What does that mean? If let's say somebody is on a Facebook social media. Then how can the authentication, I mean, if we are talking about uh, somebody on the banking side or somebody on uh, some financial side, on the, the trading side or things like that, that's a different. But if they are on social media, uh, there are, you know, uh, I heard reports that there are so many, everybody has pictures, uh, their family pictures or personal pictures on social media. People can easily download those pictures and that itself is also very 
big security threat because you know anybody can uh, change the pictures you know in some format and then uh, show that they are part of that you know they are who they are you know talking about they can steal the identity so easily so that makes me also wonder why social media you know allows pictures to be downloaded so easily that is something that is also easily fixable but when you say coming back to that point of authentication how do we authenticate at every step irrespective of whether it's a financial site or a social media site so so, so the idea is is that it used to be that when we would, would go to our banking website or to our facebook site or something like that we would log in all right and that login was the binary step you either have the login and you're you're that person or you're not so what I'm talking about now is instead of worrying about something that is simply as binary as that, to look at the behavior of that user. So, so based on past behavior, we, we catalog that, we put it through an algorithm, we've got machine learning, we've got AI that's, that's being applied as well. And you look at the behavior, does the behavior of, of, of the past mimic the behavior of what's going on right now or is there something different that's going on all of a sudden so is is it has the person uh, say say it's amazon for for example and every single uh, every single week for the past three years the person has bought nothing but uh adult undergarment diapers all right something like that and then all of a sudden the person signs on and they try to buy a laptop that behavior while, while that's a, an extreme example that behavior doesn't match the past behavior of the user. So if we can if we can actually look at what the user has done, if it's a Facebook, if it's a social media account, what has that user typically done during their entire span since being a member? And does it does it correlate to their current behavior that's going on right now? If it doesn't, that needs to raise a flag and someone needs to look at it at that point. That's an excellent point. So it's not only the blockchain or biometrics that we are talking about, but we will need to use machine learning very heavily, you know, right. and uh, that would help, like you said, you know, that's an excellent point that we have to compare it with the past behavior. If there is something out of ordinary, that should flag immediately. But then it brings back the point that, you know, these kind of initiatives, machine learning and blockchain and all that large organizations or organizations with resources, they will be able to afford that. But if you are talking about small organizations, you know, they not all of them will have that kind of resources to be able to have provide their consumers or their customers or, you know, members that kind of uh, identity uh, protection, like, you know, having a machine algorithm, you know, monitor uh, their uh, performance on their website or uh, having a blockchain you know platform so that is something that still the the vulnerabilities will still remain you know so that is something we will have to figure out how to make it affordable so each and every entity across nations is government industries organizations and academia are able to use you know biometrics are able to use you know blockchain platform are able to use machine learning so that we can secure take all you know variables into consideration and come up with a very secured strategy very you know uh, complete strategy so that we can provide that identity protection that everyone you know deserves but Coming, uh, going back to the point that once the identity theft happens for any individual, what legal responses are available irrespective of which nation they live in? Well, the, the problem becomes, first of all, it becomes that, that the person that is usually the victim of identity theft, very rarely do they ever report it to law enforcement. 
it's, it's extremely rare that you ever see anyone that actually files a police report. What they do is they contact their bank. They say, my credit card's been stolen. The bank shuts down the card, issues them a refund on whatever the, the charges were, and they send them a new card out. And very rarely do they ever notify local police department or federal or federal law enforcement. What that is needs behind that? Pardon me? What is the reason behind that? A lot of it is so you look at you look at the UK you've got action fraud over there in the United States we've got IC3 a lot of it is this perception that people have that simply reporting it will result in nothing happening that law enforcement doesn't do anything about it uh, that is really not true what happens is is that it goes in a database law enforcement looks at every single uh, complaint that comes in and certainly they may not be able to act on that one specific complaint at that point but they compile enough information that they're able to build a case on a group of people or on a specific person and at that point try to identify them, go and arrest them and put them in jail for a while. And and it's only by sharing information that we're able to stop these types of crimes. The people who remain silent, who do not complain, who do not file reports, whether that be a person or a company, the only thing they're doing is they're making it easier for a criminal to commit those types of crimes. It becomes extremely important to report. So everything needs to be reported. You need to pursue charges. There's, there shouldn't be a such any such thing as I don't want to pursue charges on this person. You should always prosecute always. Um, that way it sends a message to the criminals that are out there committing the crimes that yes, you can and will go to jail if we catch you. Um, so that becomes the first thing is if say you're a victim of credit card theft or that type of identity theft or a loan fraud or anything. First, you notify the credit bureaus. I'm sorry. First, you notify the bank, law enforcement, credit bureaus. That, that way they take care of it from there and you continue following up with it. It, it becomes a problem. It's, it's the onus is on the victim at that point to make sure they follow through with all this stuff. So that is the thing. See, they, all the responsibilities fall on that individual whose identity, you know, uh, is compromised. But when they report to, let's say, you know, their financial uh, credit card agency or credit card uh, bank or any any you know organization that their the credit card is lost or that travel license office that the travel license is lost, any you know important document, doesn't that become responsibility of that organization that they should you know uh, notify the police or there isn't there some sort of uh, sharing of data between organization between banks and police departments because for an individual to go and report this crime in so many different places that becomes a very tedious affair for and it looks like you know we can make it much more simpler by just you know organizations sharing the data with the police department that these many you know credit cards were compromised this month and uh, they have all the data that they need so that way we can make it a simpler process because uh, i am not sure that any individual you know is out there who is reporting every single you know data breach that they are you know going through like their credit card is lost or stolen or the travel license is lost or their check is stolen or something anything you know check is lost, checkbook is lost there are you know nobody is doing that from what i'm hearing so that makes it uh, uh, and i'm not even sure even if they report it what kind of you know response they are getting or what kind of benefits they are getting so that could also be the reason that you know they are not reporting it so from your assessment, what you have seen that why once even if they report, someone reports that, you know, their credit card was stolen to the bank or to the police department, what steps are taken after that? <laughs> well, a lot of it depends on the organization themselves. Uh, for example, I, I work with a lot of um, darknet monitoring companies. And one of the examples I will talk about is uh, 
one specific company ended up getting over 20,000 credit card numbers from this one specific bank and they notified the bank. The bank refused to take the credit card numbers. Now, why would the bank do that? Certainly there's the issue of liability at that point. There's also the issue of if the bank takes all those numbers, then they have to issue every single card again at a cost of $20 per card. So it's a huge cost for the bank as well. Time and time again, we see that that it's not just banks, but it's it's organizations as a whole. Some of them are very upfront. For example, Reddit was hit a few weeks ago with a breach, and they were very upfront with every single thing that happened. They handled that 100% completely correct. All right, But time and again, we see that either banks or financial institutions or any organization at all, they're hit with a breach and they minimize things. Or they, someone tells them they, they are a victim. You know, you've been hit. We have this information. And they, they refuse to take it either because of liability, because of the cost of replacement of cards, any number of things like that. So they're trying to delay as much as possible before they have to act on things. We have to get to the point that we, we have to understand that, that when that delay happens, that, that gap of time is the exact gap that a criminal walks into and steals information, money, access, anything like that. We have to get to the point where we're timely on these things, where we act immediately. When, say, a darknet company catches 20,000 active credit cards for one specific bank and he notifies the bank, the bank has to, at that point, you know, yes, it's going to cost us $20 a card, we need to take it and do something about it at this point. Or a company's been breached and instead of trying to hide the breach, you know, guess what? Instead of it being 143 Americans, it was every single American that was that was compromised on this data breach all of a sudden. We have to get to the point where we're open and honest about that so that people understand that this is serious and you need to do something about it. Americans, especially Americans, have gotten to the point where we're desensitized to it. There are so many breaches. Last year alone, there were 1,500 just reported breaches. 1,500. That's like, what? <laughs> four a day, over four a day was what that was. So Those we, are the we, ones that are reported, the ones that are not reported. Exactly. Uh, the numbers are many more. So, but, but you made an excellent point about the legal liability, that why organizations try to delay as they delay, you know, in uh, each of these data breaches that they go through. And that's uh, these Western nations, we, you know, in United States, in Canada, in UK, in Europe, you know, all these countries are, you know, the economy and a portion of the economy thrives on lawsuits. And uh, that is also a big problem that there is a big culture of, you know, legal lawsuits that well, it's works. become this idea of it, it's it's this us versus them mentality. And we have to get past that. We have to get to the idea where it's not it's not us versus them. It's not merchants versus banks. It's not people versus banks or anything else like that. It's everyone together. Every single person is a victim of, of this cyber type or cybercrime fraud, every single person. It's not a question of if you're going to be a victim, it's a question of when you're going to be a victim. Exactly, exactly, because this is a new system. The cyberspace is new and uh, there are many, many inbuilt vulnerabilities and we, until we figure out how to make cyberspace secure, everyone is going to go through this kind of cyber breaches. So we do need to come up with that uh, thought process that there is no need to hide even if it happens that, you know, we need to come up with effective legislation and processes that uh, the organizations that are bridged, that they should not be punished by the shareholders or, you know, by the markets so that, you know, we can come up with a very rapid response strategy to prevent, you know, these kind of uh, further, you know, 
damage to uh, the economy. But that is, you know, a very complex topic and we need to talk with, you know, policy <laughs> many other decision makers about, you know, what needs to be done and how we need to go forward, you know, because you no, know, like you said, nobody's going to be able to prevent it. If not today, it's just a matter of, you know, when it's going to happen. Everyone right. going to be hit. And, you know, the more uh, important uh, thing is that if you have more resources you can recover quickly but for small organization and individuals and families for them to recover it's going to probably take lifetime you know that's why we need to evaluate what needs to be done so that we can prevent the damage and we can prevent the impact in the manner that's happening for you know individual small organizations because they just cannot probably afford to go through these kind of you know damage and impact that's happening to that but having said that, what would you like to tell our global viewers and listeners about your efforts, about your organization's efforts, and uh, especially those young minds that are out there that they should, what would you tell them that would prevent them going towards this dark path and getting, you know, into this uh, stealing identities and uh, moving them away from that and helping their nation secure you know people's uh, identity and you know bring security to their nation sure so so what i would say to to the youth out there or people or, or someone that's thinking about committing cybercrime I, I would give them my story and my story is you know i i was uh, i started breaking the law when i was 10 to to steal food for me and my sister and it grew as i became older into these other types of frauds and crimes that i was committing until finally I got involved in cybercrime and I rose to the top of the cybercrime heap. I was the, uh, I was the top guy at one point and, um, I ended up going to prison and I lost every single person that I've had in my life. I lost every single bit of money that I had stolen. Um, I got to the point where no one wanted to talk to me. I, I was this horrible liar. I lied to everyone. I stole from anyone that I could. I was just a, a, a despicable person. And, um, I was just, I was not a, um, I was not a happy person. I had to find ways to, to justify my crimes all the time. And often that was lying to myself. You know, I would say I did it for my family or for my, for my wife or my for girlfriend or something like that. Um, what I would say is, is that that simply going to jail is the, is the easy part of it. That's the, that's the best that happens when, when you get caught committing cybercrime. The, the worst that happens is that every single person that you know, they no longer want anything to do with you. Your loved ones, they, 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 they're not, usually not there for you. You've, you've spent your, your life lying to them. Um, you're not going to get to keep the money that you've stolen. You're not. Um, you're, you're going to have to live this life of deceit and dishonesty, and you're just not a good person. Um, and and the, the fact of the matter is, is now I, I do a lot of work for, for law enforcement, for organizations, um, you know, consumer organizations as well as, as well as merchants and companies. The, the fact of the matter is, is that the work that I'm doing now, it, it's beneficial. I, I mean, I get, I get this thrill of, of actually helping people now. It's, uh, it, it's pretty nice. It's a pretty nice feeling to have that. It's much better than the, uh, than the years I spent breaking the law. So what I would say to people is, you know, don't, uh, there, there is a thrill. I won't lie to you about it. There's a thrill about breaking the law. But that thrill comes with a huge, huge price. It comes with jail time at the end. It comes with losing everyone that, that's important to you, um, everything else. And, and it's much easier to spend the effort that you're doing committing the crime 
by going to school, taking some classes. Hell, go into cybersecurity. I promise you it's a good field to go into. There are there, There's tons of potential there. You'll get to keep the money that you make so that you're not stealing it. You get to keep the money at that point. Um, that That's what I would say to kids is, is it's, it's really not worth it. It's really not. Um, it starts out small, either by pirating video games or movies. Then all of a sudden you're using credit cards to get those same things and credit cards change into, you know, you're trying to steal laptop computers and things like that at the end of the day. It's, you have to get to the point where, where you understand that, that those material goods are not, that's not what life's about. It's, it's about trying to help people. Um, it's better to be remembered as a person trying to help than the person that stole money. Yes, definitely. Thank you so much, Brad, for sharing your story. And I hope that you can share this story on many different platforms and are able to convince or change some of those young minds. I hope so. Not uh, going to that uh, path that you uh, at one point had been on and that you are able to make a difference. And I hope that, you know, by doing what you are doing now, that you find peace and happiness that you are looking for. So thank you so much, Brett, for participating in Risk Roundup today. Thank you so much. We appreciate your thoughtful insight on identity theft and our global viewers and listeners would benefit tremendously from the information you provided on how identity theft occurs and what can they do to protect themselves. So even if a single individual or entity can come up with an idea to protect their identity based on the identity theft discussion we had today, this is Crown of Dialogue has been of service and we thank you for that. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Wonderful. So Risk Roundup, a global initiative launched by Risk Group, is a security risk reporting for risk emerging from existing and emerging technologies, technology convergence and transformation happening across cyberspace, geospace and space. We at Risk Group believe that risk management, security and peace They all walk together hand in hand. Though security is related to management of threats and peace to the management of conflict, risk management is related to management of security vulnerabilities as well as management of conflict. And it is not possible to conceive any one of the three without the existence of the other two. All three concepts feed into each other. We believe that the security we build for ourselves is precarious and uncertain until it is secure for everyone across nations. Tradition becomes our security, so if we build a culture of managing risk effectively, it will lead us to security, and security will lead us to peace. Let's manage the existing and emerging risk together. For more information on the Risk Roundup, to watch the Risk Roundup videos, or hear the Risk Roundup podcast, please go to riskgroupalacy.com, and do not forget to subscribe and share. Until next time, I'm Jayshree, host of Risk Roundup, signing off. See you next time. Thank you.